0: The Tumbler's Willy podcast, episode six. It was Tumbler's Years Ago Today. The Turpington Tapes, part two.
1: Hello to all you tumbleheads out there. I'm Andy Barbro, American television writer.
0: I'm Andy Stanton, British children's author. And as you probably know by now, we're here to sink our teeth once again into Tumblr's Willie, the, well, probably the most lauded British television show of all time. Oh, the show of all shows, the show par excellence. Yep, it's excellence is just incredibly par. And well, I hope we can convey to you, our listeners, even a fraction of our excitement for this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all we're trying to do here—just spread a little love. Yeah, which is quite appropriate because we've come to the summer of love in our story—the summer of 1967. And if you'll remember, last time we were discussing the show's mm-hmm. celebrated director of this era, Nate Turpington. So we're going to pick up his story because there's well, there's just a lot to say about this guy. Right.
1: Nate Turpington, where do you start? This this hot shot young director brought in by the BBC in an attempt to tap into the new youth audience. Mm -hmm. This this knight in shining armor,
0: this boy wonder. Absolutely. He's uh, barely 23 years of age. Uh, He's never worked in TV before. Suddenly he finds himself sitting pretty with the best job in showbiz. Yeah, possibly the most important job in the United Kingdom. Right. I mean, Sir Harold Wilson was spitting nails by all accounts. He was furious. Oh, Wilson wanted the job himself, full stop. I mean, he
1: felt that he couldn't have a tenth of the impact as prime minister as he could have had as director of tumblers.
0: Yeah, well, he knew where the power really lay, I think. But, you know, the BBC did give the job to Turpington rather than the PM, and they were right to do so, I think. Uh, even so, Turbington was, as we say, very young. He was untested. And my question to you, Andy, is, Was it too much too soon? I mean, how do you deal with the sort of overnight success that Nate Turpington enjoyed almost overnight?
1: Well, for sure, because in a blink of an eye, he's gone from total obscurity to... Look, he he signs up as director at 4 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon. No one's ever heard of him. Mm -hmm. And by 20 past five, he's at the Groucho Club partying with the Beatles. Hmm. He's partying with
0: Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, the Monty Pythons. He's partying with Allen Ginsberg, Bob Dylan at Mia Farrow's there. The Harlem Globetrotters. Right, right. By six o'clock, he's shoving Lou Reed into a urinal to the merriment of all concerned. Uh, He's challenging Marianne Faithful to a game of snooker. I mean, he immediately positions himself at the epicenter of the London scene.
1: One minute he's buying a flat with the Dalai Lama, the next he's sharing a milkshake with Muhammad Ali. It it, it would be surprising if it hadn't gone to his head.
0: Right, right. And I think this is what I'm getting at, Andy. I think this is where our man perhaps uh, begins to overstep the mark.
1: Mm Hmm. Around a quarter to seven,
0: right. Right. I think quarter to seven is probably the watershed moment. Uh, Because, well, look, there's a lot of figures who could lay claim to the title of the fifth Beatle, right? Yeah. Yeah. But now here's our man, Turpington, and by this point he's telling Paul McCartney to his face. Fifth Beatle? Forget it. I'm Nate Turpington. I'm the first Beatle, mate.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which he definitely wasn't, by the way. Uh, I would put John, Paul,
0: George, Ringo. Yeah, all ahead of Turpington. I think I would too. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, the, he's arguing this with Paul McCartney himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the first Beatle. Yeah, the chusper of this guy and, you know, what poor old Macca must have made of it. I mean, Paul's like, but you're not. You're clearly not, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I met John in school and we were we became friends. To which Turpington's astonishing response is, but did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, McCartney, who, ooh, look, by this stage in his career was, let's say, a little messy around the brain area, to say the least. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, from all the endless fizzy drinks and chocolate bars. It, he was very suggestible by this point. He didn't know which way was up. Right. He, he, thought, he thought a way that was not up was up. hmm
1: I think he was very vulnerable.
0: Yeah, I think so. And look, Turpington, when he wanted to, could charm the birds down from the trees. We know that. Oh, right. He was famously often covered in magpies and
1: and wrens.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, much to his own astonishment, I think Paul McCartney does somehow end up agreeing that, yeah, perhaps Turpington is the first Beatle and, you know, subsequently finds himself inviting this guy back to the studio later that night to listen to the band's latest project. Yeah, yeah. He wanted his opinion. He thought, if this guy's the first Beatle, I better run it past him. I better run it past him. Uh, So they do go back to Abbey Road and there, firmly ensconced in a hot tub in Studio A, Paul McCartney plays for Turpington, a very early draft of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Wow. Wow. It sounds like a dream of the 1960s incarnate, right? Wrong. Because for Nate Turpington and the Beatles, that's where the problems began.
1: So let's talk about how this unfolds. You're Nate Turpington. You've just been given a front row seat to the revolution. You've heard Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, She's Leaving Home, A Day in the Life. You're maybe the sixth or seventh person on earth who has ever heard these songs. For anyone else, it would have been enough. You would have said, thank you, my life is fulfilled, and you would have left with either an Abbey Road pen or an ashtray in your pocket. Right, whatever you could get away with when Paul's back was turned. And yet, for Turpington, this wasn't enough, because he left with something else, an obsession.
0: That's exactly it. Yeah, uh, obsession is not too strong a word. Turpington hears in Sgt. Pepper's a lot of the same things that he's trying to accomplish with Tumblr's Willie. He feels that the two works are complementary or a... Symbiotic, even.
1: Right, right. And he began to believe that one could not even exist without the other. In in fact, he argued Mm. it would not even make sense for the Beatles to release Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band if it were not presented to the public as a companion piece Hmm. to his forthcoming 1967 season of Tumblr's Willie.
0: Right. He could not get this off his mind. You know, he starts to envisage... Now, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, artistic crossovers ever conceived in the mind of man or beast. Mm -hmm, He said mm -hmm. uh, uh, kids all over the nation are starting to tune into tumblers and they're dropping out and they're turning on man. Yeah, yeah. They're grooving to my new character, the reverend's daughter. This is music for the eyes I'm giving them here. But, you know, what you're giving them, Paul, again, uh, the two of them are sitting in a hot tub here, uh, this time on Hampstead Heath in North London. Uh, What you're giving them, Paul, is something that's never been done before music for the ears
1: yeah 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 and and if we were to combine those two Mm. we would have music for almost the entire face
0: right right so he lays out the blueprint he lays out the blueprint for this whole experience whereby if you were to perfectly sync up sergeant peppers with uh you know what he's working yeah with the next season of tumblers right right then both pieces of art would achieve a state whereby they're magnified they're amplified they're in a dialogue with each other and uh, yes yeah and, you know, both are elevated to a higher level, you know, a much higher level than either artwork could have achieved in its own right.
1: Right, right. And Paul was swayed by this, uh, but there were problems with the Beatles end of it, in Turpington's opinion. There were problems. Yeah, he, he felt that Sgt. Pepper's, in its current shape, was missing some elements that would have made it perfect for his purposes.
0: Right and it's Paul to whom he takes these grievances. Uh, Turpington really does bend Macca's ear about this as they sit around uh, discussing life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, in, uh, in
1: various hot tubs around town.
0: Exactly. And it's very much through Paul then that Turbington is able to worm his way like mm-hmm. a, you know, really like a snail mm. into the heart of the Beatles.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wormed his way like a snail.
0: Exactly. Right. And to that end, over the following weeks and months, Nate Turbington becomes more and more a presence at the Abbey Road recording sessions. You know, mm-hmm. he was always there. He would just sort of say like, oh, you couldn't just put a few extra sound effects on that one, could you, Paul? And, you know, these weren't unreasonable demands, at least not to begin with. Uh, yeah, but as yeah. time goes on, they do start to somewhat alter the tone of the record. Uh, For instance, at one point, Turpington demanded long-spoken narrative sections between each track, uh, and by a character of his own devising called the King of the Snowmen, Uh, which Turpington insisted would give the album some much-needed cohesion. Right, right, to turn it almost into a concept album. Exactly so. And also to fit into... Well, I don't know how, but to fit into whatever Turpington's plans for tumblers may have been. And of course, John balked at this. Yeah, yeah. This made no sense to John. I mean, Paul was a walkover because uh, Paul was already... uh, Turpington had knocked the sap out of Paul. Paul was... um, Well, they were hot tub pals. Right. So Paul was, well, fine, fine. Paul was scared of him, I think. He was like, "Uh, yeah, mate, anything you want. Uh, King of the snowmen, yeah, that sounds fab. But, you know, John would say... Well, why the King of the Snowmen? What's that about?
1: Yeah, yeah. And Turpington would say, look, I I, I, I can't explain it to your tiny brain. Just do it, basically. I'm working on something bigger than this,
0: John. So the mighty John Lennon, Lord of the 1960s, for once in his life finds himself up against a worthy opponent. He caves in. Slightly abashed. Uh, After that, Turpington's off to the races. He really is. Having got his snowman in, he then wanted anything and everything. Mm -hmm. He wanted a chorus of anvils, Mm. whatever that meant. He wanted the band to always record wearing blue hats and outfitted as fishmongers.
1: Yeah. Oh, he wanted to restring the guitars with dry spaghetti to achieve what he called that elusive al dente sound.
0: Wildly experimental stuff. He wanted them to remove all the vocals from a day in the life and have them redone by astronauts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was brilliant, to be fair, or, or it could have been brilliant. It
1: could have been brilliant, but we'll never know. Right. He, he wanted trombones, I remember hearing. Uh, he wanted like a, a single trombone. Uh, in She's Leaving Home. He wanted like a uh-huh. trombone glissando, like uh-huh. right in the right, middle. Right. And yet again, John <laughs> had a problem with that.
0: Well, John thought it played against the emotion. I mean, George loved the idea. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. George was like, yeah, let's do that. Loads of trombone, lad. Yeah, George got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wednesday morning mm. at five o'clock. five
1: o'clock. You know, all the way down and then right back up.
0: So it was what, at the end of every line? Was that the idea or, or once in the song? Or? It was sporadically. So uh. th-
1: that was the idea that uh-huh. you would never know when it was coming.
0: Oh, okay. I remember now. He actually wanted them to press different copies, I think, with different recordings.
1: Yes, yes. That was another thing.
0: So the, uh, it would vary. It would vary from household to household. Is that right? R-
1: yeah, yeah. A- and he got George Martin's ear. And uh-huh. He was like, well, we need to do, do 410,000 different masters <laughs> wow. of, this, of this album.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I heard. He insisted that each individual copy of the record would feature a unique trombone performance.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, which is way ahead of its time. Uh, Yeah, yeah. You know, the the multitudinous trombone gliss wasn't successfully pulled off until, I think, uh, a P. Diddy album in the early 2010s. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. And that album ended up selling millions of copies.
0: Right, so Turpington's instincts were sound. Although uh, P. Diddy's trombonist, incidentally, uh, very unfortunately. Well, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. He sadly died mm. of exhaustion trying to fulfill a reissue pressing for the Asian market. It was just too many... Too many records. Ouchie,
0: yeah. ouchie. That is very sad. Um, Turpington also insisted on 14 seconds of French curse words during, with a little help from my friends. Yes,
1: yes. Hard, hard French expletives like Ooh, yep. dock worker strength.
0: Dear me. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And Ringo was really into that, I think.
0: Oh, yeah. Ringo was all over that. I mean, this time it was George who was outraged. Uh, yeah. George walked out of the studio, he kicked his guitar to bits. He said, Never again, never again. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you know, twenty minutes later, good old Georgie was back saying, Okay, just this once, just this once. But you know, it was getting chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Turpington also insisted that Lennon fall in love with and marry Yoko Ono against his will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And John said
1: why and turpington was like for the sound you know yeah
0: it will help the record trust me just trust me your voice will sound better it will sound different john just because of the experiences that you've lived through as a married man Uh, yeah a married man's voice on a record sounds way different than
1: a bachelor's
0: right 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 and you know john who poor old john you know couldn't have been more indifferent to this woman
1: yeah yeah
0: what the woman who i'm probably most indifferent to on the planet marry her yeah
1: he said, you yeah. know. It was it was famously, it was indifference at first sight for mm. both of them. They looked at each other across a, a room. Everyone knows the story. He, right. he went mm. to the gallery show of hers and he saw her and he saw her art and he, he thought, I feel. I feel nothing. I feel absolutely nothing for nothing this person. Nothing at all. Neither good nor bad. Right,
0: right. But, yeah. you know, Turpington, for whatever reason, had gotten this idea into his noggin and he said, it has to be heard, dear boy. Yoko's the girl for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll
0: help the art. Don't ask me. But it'll,
1: the listener will sense it in your voice, and you know, that you've been through this thing. And, you know, And then mm, when mm.
0: they listen in conjunction with tumblers. Yep, yep. Always in conjunction, in conjunction. So, yes, Lennon does start dating Yoko Ono. And eventually, well, we know how it turned out. Uh,
1: well, yeah. M- much again. Against his own wishes. Uh, he did later end up marrying her for
0: the sound. Yeah. And I think that's why he killed himself later on. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think Turpington was really grinding their gears by now, you know, to the point where they're starting to say, well, is it our record or is it Nate Bloody Turpington's, you mm-hmm, know? hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul was a goner. Uh, Paul, by this point, had regressed totally. Uh, yeah. He was in yeah. full diaper and a, a, a dummy or a pacifier, you'd call it, Andy. Mm. Uh, he was. Uh, he, he wouldn't yeah. be reached. Uh, he, he lost his ability to count. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He thought a bass guitar was a rusk at one point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He began wearing shoes on on his hands. That's where that whole thing started. Sure, sure. I mean, this is Turpington's influence, though. It's brilliant. It's visionary. But it's potentially very, very damaging. It's daring. It's challenging. There will be fallout. Yeah,
1: someone's going to turn into a baby.
0: Yeah. And that's always the risk with this sort of Pushing of artistic boundaries. But, you know, very sadly, uh, what rewards might have been snatched from this cultural banquet, we will never know because the Beatles balked.
1: Yeah, they flinched.
0: They welched on the whole thing. In the final reckoning, Turpington's ideas simply proved too much for their rather flimsy palates, and they ended up rejecting most of his suggestions out of hand.
1: Yeah, no trombone in leaving home, no swear no words swear during words. a little help, no
0: bonus disc of toilet sounds. Yep, kesara nussara. Whatever will be, you know, won't be in this case. Yeah, no, no. Because of the basically
1: the selfishness of the Beatles. I'd say the
0: small mindedness, Andy.
1: The small mindedness of this infuriatingly mm. conservative band mm. who have robbed us all of this art. You know, mm. so much hubris, I think, on the Beatles' part to not mm. even.
0: To... Well, I mean, Turpington was working to an epic vision. You know, sadly, the same could not be said of the Beatles, Andy. Mm. And it's a shame because Sgt. Pepper's ain't a half bad little listen if you're in the mood.
1: Right, right. As a collection of jingle jangle, you know, just a little escapism. It's, it's a bit
0: of fun. It's a bit of fun. Yeah. But, you know, when you think what it could have been if they'd had the courage mm. of Turpington's convictions.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the real shame of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah.
0: that they came so close to, mm. to doing something actually good. Well, it's famously a near miss of an album, isn't it? Uh, right. Yeah. And, you know, we'll never know just how near, I mean. Uh, I mean, it's good. I'm it's not, definitely I'm, good. I'm loath
1: to take anything away from it. Look, I mean, it, they're fine. They're fine. It's a they're fun, fine. You no, know, it's
0: an okay. It's whatever. A, it, it's it, it's definitely it's, good. It, it's a good album. It's definitely a good album. It's a good album. It's a good. It just it falls short of something. It really does. Yeah.
1: So having failed to realize his grand vision of marrying these two magnum opuses together, having been turfed out in no uncertain fashion by the not-so-fab-four, where does Turpington go from here?
0: Well, he wasn't about to give up without a fight, Andy. You have to see it from his point of view. The amount of work he'd put in with these insufferable people, it was heartbreaking. Right, right. He
1: he was broken. And Mm. he wandered Mm. around Abbey Road Studios for quite a while, I believe. He was constantly... Mm -hmm trying to sneak into the control room to remaster that album right right and he actually lived in the ceiling at one point like hiding from them
0: yep yeah, yeah they weren't having any of it though they uh, simply sealed the ceiling panels and there was no way for him to actually you know climb down. they outfoxed him in any number of ways you know they would uh, well
1: people don't realize what what brilliant cat and mouse artists the beatles were i mean that was really their forte
0: Absolutely, and also the resources and the personnel that they had at their disposal. I mean, he was up against the entire Abbey Road special ops team, you know.
1: No, it's an unfair fight, no matter how brilliant you are.
0: Right, you know, the technicians would pump gases at him, They would. Uh, the receptionists would just fire a hockey pucks at him, you know. It wouldn't be worth his while trying to even approach the mixing console because he'd just get hurt. Yeah, right, 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 right. And he didn't even have any shin pads in the first place, so there was just no way. There was no way he was getting to the control panel, you know. Without shim pads.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tumblr's is suffering too. He, he really just couldn't do both. You know, he couldn't run the most popular TV show in the UK and maintain this vendetta against the biggest band in the world.
0: Right. But you've got to admire the ambition. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, you really have.
1: Right, yeah. And, and just by way of background, I'd like to as well address I've heard the theory posited that. Uh-huh. What drove Turpington this whole time was the fact that he had a third arm sticking out of his chest, mm. uh, that he, he was obsessively trying to distract people from that third arm. Mm. Uh, and that, in a way, that's
0: what made him what he was, I guess. Well, I do think he was ashamed of that to some extent. I mean, we should point out that it wasn't a fully functioning arm, by the way, N- right, uh, right. L- lest we paint some sort of horrific picture for <laughs> any of our listeners. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it was just a withered dead arm from an embryonic twin.
0: Yeah, it was, it was just an embryo. It's not unusual. No, uh, no. Quite the opposite, really. Oh, but, I, I've
1: um, heard estimates that as high as 30, 40% mm-hmm, of the world's population mm-hmm. had a third arm of some description back then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A uh, huge spike in that sort of thing around that time uh, due to the diet. So, uh,
1: Yes, right, right. Um,
0: you know, I, I think the real tragedy of Turpington is that he invested so much time trying to hide something that was really nothing to be ashamed of in the first place. Mm. Uh, you know, here was a man who was very much wrestling with himself. V- very much on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I don't mean simply that he was entangled in a physical altercation with the withered arm, mm-hmm. although he often was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it went deeper than that, you know, that in a way the third arm was actually in his mind, if you see what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, it was also on his chest. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, really, I think his third arm was really his Achilles heel. Yes,
1: yes, yes. And his Achilles Mm. heel was actually his right ear.
0: Yes, his third arm was his Achilles heel and his Achilles heel was his right ear. And I think that's why he would often cut off his nose despite his own face.
1: Right. Literally, he did cut off his own nose. And I didn't Mm. realize until recently that's where that expression comes from.
0: Yeah, that's a Turpington thing. Yes, And yeah, uh, yeah. let me tell you, Andy, that was quite an ugly scene. Oh, my God,
1: yes. <laughs> that was... Yeah. yeah, and a lot of that episode, I believe, that was in the 1968 season. Mm-hmm. And um, it was accidentally broadcast, and it went out. So episode uh-huh. nine of that season is uh-huh. just Nate Turpington nearly slicing himself to <laughs> death in a darkened room.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a harrowing episode, I think, is... A the best you could yeah, say there, yeah, yeah, uh, just that yeah. ooh, hour and twenty minutes of raw, unedited viscera. Yeah, yeah, self-inflicted carnage. Uh, uh, I think really that's. Well, that's ultimately where it all began going wrong for Turpington, I think, after that episode went out, you know. Yeah,
1: right, right, Al- right.
0: Although to this day, he would probably maintain that he never intended it to be broadcaster. His defense was that he pressed play by accident, would you believe?
1: Yeah, yeah. He kind of bumped into the console when he was writhing in pain. Right. Which I guess is plausible.
0: But really, I mean, come on. He knew what he was doing. He must have known his days on the show were numbered.
1: Yeah, it seemed, look. He obviously manufactured the whole incident as a protest against the Beatles, Mm. the BBC. Mm. He was lashing out. He he was clearly having problems.
0: Oh, sure. But to air an episode as brutal as that, I mean, no matter what problems you're up against, you know, it's indefensible. Yeah. It's indefensible. It's indefensible. Mm. And yet a pretty damn good episode. Yeah, I mean it's aged well. It's aged awfully well. Yeah, it's aged well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But mm. but I think back then it- Yeah, back then I've seen the reports and you know a lot of people just absolutely vomited over themselves when that one went out, mate.
1: Yeah, yeah, the BBC they had to let him go. I I can't see how they could have kept him on after
0: that. Oh yeah, no way. No way, no. I mean, look, with the best will in the world, he's crossed a line.
1: So what do we know about Turpington's post-BBC career? Because I I feel like there's not much in the way of information in terms of...
0: Right. Well, you know, it's pretty much downhill from there, as you might imagine. Yeah, Uh, yeah. He pops up from time to time behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he he directed some far lesser shows for ITV. Uh, He did a season of The Nothing Family in the early 70s, which was quite well received. Uh, Mm -hmm. He -hmm. wrote and produced a couple of episodes of Towels on Parade. Mm -hmm. And one can see sparks of excellence in all of this, but, you know, Mm. These are really lesser things, they're minnows compared to the enormous barracuda that is tumblers yes, are yes. you know minnows and sprats, really, and I think that from the mid seventies onwards, Turpington drops out of the telly racket altogether, really, and you know just becomes a very enigmatic figure indeed, and yeah, he just well, he just crops up mostly in fields around the country mm-hmm. you know? uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. He, he was seen in a house, I believe in Nottingham, but uh, mm. just briefly seen in a house around 1982 we mm. haven't got much more than that to go on so um yeah there's no rhyme or reason to it i think ultimately he's just another casualty of uh
1: yeah yeah just another casualty of the roaring 60s it's very sad
0: it's awfully sad somebody thought they saw him uh near a statue i think i heard mm. but uh again details are very wispy so uh yeah turpington he um he, he just faded away yeah like a spider like a spider circling the bath plug, you'd have to say. Mm.
1: Incy Wincy Turpington.
0: Incy Wincy Turpington. It's
1: it's really too sad.
0: Mm -hmm. Falling
1: out with the Beatles, haunting Abbey Road for months on end, that ugly public feud with Muhammad Ali...
0: Yeah, squabbling over a milkshake on the King's Road like a couple of schoolgirls. Yeah,
1: and then the whole nose thing. It's a horrible yeah. shame when you think about it.
0: It is, it is. But, you know, I like to think maybe he's out there somewhere, you know, somewhere still, and Andy. Uh, standing by a bin in the rain, maybe.
1: Yeah, or yeah, uh, asleep in a, a bus shelter, perhaps.
0: Yeah, well, you know, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger, as Harold Lloyd once said. Yes, right. After his, uh, I believe he said that right after he fell off that clock, actually. Ah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that guy could not catch a break.
0: I mean... Well, let's just say Harold Lloyd was not mishap-free. He was a very clumsy man. But, Mm. uh, you know, again, uh, we digress.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which brings us right back to Tumblr's and the very first episode following the nose incident, episode 10 of the 1968 season, We Digress.
0: So, with Turpington out of the running, the BBC now turns to another great talent to reverse the damage. Enter Sir Bertold Bertold.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Sir Berthold Bertold, who had come from a totally different tradition. You know, he had come from the theatre and, you know, he was. Well, he, he still remembered the last days of the big ship and all uh, those other marvelous West End playhouses. Yeah, right, right. The dinghy, the ambassador's uh, walnut, uh, 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 the floppy duke. The floppy duke. Yeah he, yeah, he was a graduate of that whole school.
0: Ah, uh, Sir Bertold Bertold, dear old Freddy, they called him. Yeah.
1: Dear old Arthur
0: dear old Jeff and uh, his remit really was to tidy up what had been a most ugly episode. And no, I'm not just talking about the nasal incident, but uh, Turpington's entire reign, I suppose you'd say.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to draw a line under that for sure.
0: Oh, very much so. So Bertold tackles this by way of a special 10 hour long episode where uh
1: Uh kind of a let's hit the reset button kind of a thing.
0: Exactly, exactly. So an episode where not one single line was followed by a logical follow-up. So yes, the episode was titled, as you say, Andy, uh, We Digress. And uh, it consisted of non sequitur after non sequitur. It was absolutely charming.
1: Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant in
0: its its incomprehensibility. A brilliant return. An incredible return. As if to say there could be no logical follow-up to the nose debacle. As if to say, Mm. does anything make sense anymore in a world where that can happen? No, nothing does. So what can we respond with? But fragment after fragment after fragment. One thinks of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. One Mm -hmm. recalls the cut-up techniques of William Burroughs. Edgar Verres' Music Concrete. One is put in mind of Pick and mix assortment of sweets at the cinema. Mm. Essentially, I think Berthold is saying, come back to the fold, you know, don't let the nose thing put you off, just just come back.
1: Yeah, yeah, come home, we're going to take care of you, we're going to offer you everything under the sun.
0: You're in safe hands.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which made it all the more surprising that not a month later... Not one month later. Sir Bertold Bertold ended his career in exactly the same way as Turpington.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Here comes the man who we thought, you know, who is who is least likely to slice off his face on television for for an hour and a half.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and, yet, and yet, yeah. you know, oops, it's happened again. A nation already reeling from uh, Turpington's yeah. atrocities. A uh, nation
1: who had just come back to trusting their mm, televisions for the first time.
0: Yeah, they tune in with eager faces, and I, I'd say keen appetites, and yeah, uh, yeah. what should they aspire, but ooh, dear me, Bertolt, Bertolt, the, you know, a ghastly apparition, really, mm-hmm. this screaming, bloody mass of tissue, and fear just, uh, rending his own God, flesh. Rending and, his own flesh. Uh, literally cutting his... His own nose off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the
1: expression had not already been coined for Turpington, it it certainly (laughs) would have become synonymous with Sir Bertold. Bertold.
0: Oh, absolutely. It was hideous. It It was. It was indefensible. It was indefensible. You cannot do that. You cannot put that out. There is no excuse. No excuse. No excuse. And yet, pretty good episode.
1: Yeah, it holds up. Yeah, the worst you could say is it's a little derivative.
0: Well, quite. I mean, it was Turpington all over again, wasn't it? Uh, Turpington 2, thundered the Daily Telegraph. Yeah,
1: Turpington 2. Ah, we thought we were free. We thought this couldn't happen in our living rooms again. And (laughs) and there it goes, which was so tumblers.
0: So tumblers, so, so tumblers. And look, it's an extraordinary season, really. I mean, very much, I think, in its ups and downs, mirroring the rocky days of civil unrest at the end of that tumultuous decade as well. Sure, uh, sure. You know, the, the summer of love and blood really... Really, one has to say. Yeah, uh, summer
1: of love and blood. That's another yeah, phrase you yeah. hear a lot.
0: Yeah, unpleasant scenes um, all round. And uh, yeah. Again, Bertold Bertold's story from this point on. Uh, you know, he is, of course, uh, immediately sacked by the BBC, a la Turpington before him.
1: Yeah, well, uh, they couldn't. If they'd kept him on after slicing <laughs> off his own nose on national television, it, it would have looked like double
0: standards. Oh, it would have looked like favoritism. And, mm. you know, again, much like Topington before him, uh, Berthold's whereabouts after that now becomes something of a mystery. Uh, he's seen on a moor. He's glimpsed next to a ramp at one point. Yeah, uh, yeah, a ramp. And, you know, the last that anybody knows of him, he just drifted, really. Yeah. Drif- drifted. Yeah. Uh, no one can pinpoint the decade, let alone the year. Uh, he was just seen drifting off, to mm-hmm. be honest.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a little derivative. It's a bit samey.
0: But that's, uh, you know, wither a really.
1: With a Berthold, yeah,
0: yeah. Dear old Brian. Dear old Eddie. Dear old Graham. So I think one of the most interesting things about tumblers is, is that even when it, you know, reaches for the grand gesture and doesn't quite make it, you go, well, there's still something I can learn from this. There's something that, You know, sometimes it's right. Sometimes it almost seems more successful in its failures. Yeah. On occasion. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: Some have called it really the most successful failure in in world history.
0: Yeah, they have. Some have. And uh, some when questions have just said, well, I'm afraid I have no opinion on that. I'm not familiar with the show.
1: Right, right, right. A lot of people say that. And and that's a success in itself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just goes to show the power of how just how widespread this show is.
0: Yeah, it's so widespread. I mean, there are a lot of people who have never heard of it, Andy, who love it, who absolutely love it more than any other show that they have seen, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like it's it's so ubiquitous. That's the mm. thing. It's like people mm, people mm. aren't even aware that they're aware of it.
0: Right, right. And then there's a lot of people who aren't aware of it, but they're aware of that. Yeah, but they're aware. Yeah. Yeah and they're huge fans as well they you know
1: yeah and then there's some other people who are who are the opposite of that who are yes they are unaware of how aware they are uh-huh. of how much they don't know about the show well
0: this is it this is the thing this is exactly what i'm saying this is it. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly how it is for you know for a number of people yeah 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 and exactly how it isn't definitely in a way in a way, definitely. I mean, look, I, I know that a lot of people have only ever watched it in their dreams as well. So, yes. uh, Or they think they've watched it or, you know, they have a feeling they've seen it. Uh, a lot of people have a feeling they've seen the show. Yeah. And, for you know, for such people, it goes no further than that. And that's valid too, I think. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Absolutely it is. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, like everything, but more than most things, it is a show that affects different people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I do think that that's the most you can ask of anything, Andy. I really do. Yes, yeah. So I, I think um yeah. Overall, I do. Uh in conclusion, well, in a nutshell, I think you'd have to say
1: when all is said and done.
0: Mm. 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 mm, mm. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Uh, Do be sure to tune in next time as we delve into the next chapter of this extraordinary odyssey. And you won't want to miss that one because Tumblers, believe it or not, is blasting off.
1: Yeah. Our favourite show is Heading for the Stars. See you then, tumbleheads. See you then, tumbleheads. Bye! Podcast Network.